No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schaap. Over the next hour, a wide-ranging conversation with one of the most recognizable names in sports history, Joe Namath. My wife came to me and she said, you've got a drinking problem and uh, I want you to stop. I want you to go get help. And that scared me. That scared me at that time thinking about uh, having a problem, but also embarrassed me about going to get help. And a former college soccer player talks about the importance of the U.S. women's national team both on and off the field. Some of those women were part of my uh, foundation fundraising um, a, a couple years ago, coming off the Olympics. So it was pretty cool to see them. I mean, they're unbelievable. They're just unbelievable. They're unstoppable. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schaap. Welcome to a special edition of The Sporting Life. This week, we're joined by one of the iconic figures from the world of sports in the last half century. He was the winning quarterback in Super Bowl III, which is one of the great upsets ever in sports. He is a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and he is the author of a new memoir, All the Way, My Life in Four Quarters. It's a pleasure to welcome to The Sporting Life the one and only the great Joe Namath. Joe, thank you for being with us. Oh, Jeremy, thank you for having me, man. It's always a treat hearing you and talking with you. Oh, well, thank you, Joe. That means a lot. Now, you know, uh, this new book of yours is your first memoir since uh, one you wrote half a century ago uh, with somebody named Dick Shap, and it was called <laughs> I, I Can't Wait Until Tomorrow Because I Get Better Looking Every Day. Um you waited a long time uh, to update uh, your fans on your life since those moments in the aftermath of 1969 and Super Bowl three. Why did you write this book now? Well, actually, I was approached uh, by a publisher that because of our 50th anniversary coming up, which is this year, uh, 69, when we won uh, the championship game. And uh, this what this goes back about a year and a half ago, Jeremy, and I, I had no intentions at all of, of writing a, a book or being a part of it. It is a collective effort, a team effort, I might add, as you know, uh, certainly my work with your dad, that, that was joyful. And uh, doing this book, it was... Uh, uh, it was tedious. It was uh, pretty tough uh, going for a good while, uh, but we got it accomplished, and I'm happy uh, that we did. I had a, a lot of help from uh, uh, Sean Mortimer, of course, uh, uh, a co-writer, and uh, my daughter Jessica. Without them, man, I, I couldn't have uh, accomplished it. And, Jeremy, it, it made sense. Uh, to be able to utilize our team's history for the Jets fans and that occasion in pro football that meant so much, along with uh, some experiences that I've had uh, over the years and and really wanting to share them with a group that uh, may need some encouragement or may need some help. So I enjoyed it. Are you talking about Jets fans, a group that might need encouragement? (laughs) 
Oh, hey, that's part of it. Yeah, I, I was talking about those of us that may have had an addiction and are dealing uh, in a better fashion with that. And the Jets fans do have an addiction with those Jets, darling. Yeah, we're pulling for them. And uh, it's been tough, man. Uh, things uh, hopefully will get better this season. The, the, I would love to see the Jets get to the playoffs and win the championship. The Jets fans deserve it. Speaking with Joe Namath, whose new book is All the Way, My Life in Four Quarters. Joe, um, you know, 50 years ago at this time, you were working with my dad on that first memoir, I Can't Wait Until Tomorrow Because I Get Better Looking Every Day, with the famous cover where it's just a, a headshot of you. Um, and here we are, half a century later, and the Jets have yet to not only win another Super Bowl, but even reach another Super Bowl. But this book is about much more, as you just suggested, than football. Uh, it is about addiction, and it is about uh, sobriety, and it is about finding serenity and peace in your life. There's a lot of candor in this book. What was it like opening those veins and, and writing about it? Well, it was. Uh, I did that enthusiastically, Jeremy. I tell you, since... Uh I had the uh, public incident uh, with Susie Colbert that night uh, at a Jet game. Uh, that uh, brought the reality to me that I did need some help, and I, I reached out, and uh, I got the help. I got some education, and it's an ongoing effort, certainly. But uh, moving around the country, I, I had people, and still do to this day, that'll walk up to me uh, in an airport, in a grocery store, at a gas station, and they just say very softly, uh, Joe, uh, I'm a friend of Bill's. And that's meaning uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, an ad uh, a form of addiction, the alcohol, of course. And I said, well, man, you know, uh, I, I, it dawned on me that they didn't need to whisper that, you see. We all have some difficulties, and uh, I don't uh, believe in... Uh, uh, feeling the shame of having an addiction if we have a chance to overcome it and get together and work toward a better life. And uh, whether it's drugs, whether it's alcohol, whether it's food, we need one another to help us out. And so uh, uh, I, I believe life's a team effort too, man. And uh, uh, so those that do have addictions, I want to encourage them to to not hide it, but get out there, say help, you know, be loud about it, because there are ways to improve the life. We're speaking with Joe Namath again. His new book is All the Way, My Life in Four Quarters. And, you know, Joe, you um, you were one of the biggest stars in the world, not just one of the biggest sports stars in the mid-1960s and then up through the 1970s. And you've, you've remained in the public eye for so long. What was it like dealing with an alcohol addiction, alcoholism, while at the same time you were expected to be this public person, and that's how you made your living for so long. Well, actually, Jeremy, I, I got lucky. Uh, early on in my marriage, and uh, uh, about uh, after a year and a half into my marriage back in uh, 87, uh, actually got married in 85, uh, uh, but... Uh, Boy, now 84 got married. But my wife came to me and she said, you've got a drinking problem and uh, I want you to stop. I want you to go get help. And that, didn't, that scared me. That scared me at that time thinking about uh, having a problem, but also embarrassed me about going to get help. 
thinking that, hey, wait a minute, I, I, I can't do this on my, my own. I, I don't have the strength to do this. So uh, I did stop drinking. I promised her I would check in and get help if I didn't stop. And I stopped drinking cold turkey for 13 and a half years. And I found an excuse. Now, this is uh, part of my education. Uh, when I say I found an excuse, uh, that's how I went back to drinking. I basically found an excuse to go back to drinking. And uh, that led me uh, for another uh, couple of years into the situation uh, uh, where I was uh, out of control. I, I, I'm embarrassed totally. Uh, uh, I saw that once in my these years, uh, Jeremy, on television, and uh, and it was recent that I did see it, and uh, I was just knocked off my. You know, I don't know. I embarrassed my family, of, uh, friends, and everything. So I knew I needed help, and I went to get help, and uh, I did. Uh, I checked in and uh, got some guidance. I. After that, I, I got my friends with AA, and uh, I've been lucky. Life's been good, and it'll continue to be good. It's, uh, addiction comes, like we said earlier, I said earlier, in all forms, man, and we need help from one another to be able to kick it and deal with it. And I hope people out there that uh, have that question, you know, do I have a problem? If you think you have a problem, if you got that question, you need to go find out and, and get some help. Joe Namath's new book is All the Way, My Life in Four Quarters. And you tell the story of your life, Joe, through um, the device of the four quarters of Super Bowl three, the 16-7 to victory, which you guaranteed so famously that week in Miami. When the game uh, was coming up, and, of course, the first two Super Bowls had been blowout wins for the Green Bay Packers, first against the Chiefs and then against the Raiders. When the game was approaching in the days before it, did you have any sense of how big a deal it might be if you won? Uh, not necessarily if we won, Jeremy. Uh, I knew it was a big deal. We couldn't lose. We, there was no room to lose the game, not only for our team, of course, but the league, the AFL. Uh, we were fans uh, when we watched that first championship game of the uh, Green Bay Packers, the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, okay, so the Packers were the better team. We saw that next game they played the Packers and the Oakland Raiders. Uh, well, you know what? Those Packers were a better team. And the football world around the country uh, justifiably figured, well, that NFL, you know, uh, uh, they're, they're stronger than the AFL. The AFL is just, you know, they're, they're not there yet. As a team and as a league, we knew we had to win. Uh, as a player, what would you dream of, man? A young player in Little League or junior high, high school, you want to get to the championship game. And as a pro playing for the championship, man, the world championship in that sport was just absolutely wonderful and to work go through the valleys that we went through to get to that opportunity man yeah we knew how big it was and uh you know the the, the guarantee was a uh, to coach Eubank certainly uh, a distraction and he's right about that but i simply expressed what i honest to god felt and believed 
and was talking to my teammates and fans, man, knowing how we felt about this game going in. And uh, we ended up, I mean, our defense had those guys off the scoreboard. They didn't get on the scoreboard till late, and we were out there, and uh, it was a turning point, no doubt, because the next one, the Kansas City Chiefs beat the Minnesota Vikings, and the AFL and the NFL went into the merger with two championships apiece. You know, when you win that Super Bowl, you're, you're what, 26 years old. Uh, you're one of the biggest figures on the sports landscape. And beyond that, you're part of um, the counterculture in a way. You, you, are, um, you are a modern athlete cut in an entirely different mold from your childhood hero, Johnny Unitas, the great Colts quarterback uh, who had been coached by Weeb Eubank and who had also grown up in western Pennsylvania. Did you have a sense at the time of what you meant as a cultural figure beyond sports and why you were so important to so many young people in particular? You know, Jeremy, I, I, I didn't. No, I didn't, but I was living it. That was a part of my life. This is a part of what I know. Uh, going with the music, uh, the Woodstock, before Woodstock, the Vietnam War, the the, the saying, wait a minute, uh we we could express ourselves, and publicly we were ex- expressing ourselves, uh, backing our military, but wondering what we're doing over there. Uh, the attire was different. Uh, uh, it, it, we were different than old school, trying to, to trying to be different, maybe than old school. And uh, I, I was right in the flow of things and enjoying every minute of it. And we looked at the uh, AFL uh, players as a new group of guys uh, still dealing with a wonderful old sport, but uh, the NFL's uh, style was uh, a little bit old. And uh, we just enjoyed the, the whole happening, man, from those late, late 60s on. Yo, one of the things, Joe, that um, over the years, anybody who's been around you, um, who's followed your career, uh has been sure to notice is that you you never you never um complained you never complained or used as an excuse all the injuries that you had um you know you were hobbled seriously hobbled uh in the years following Super Bowl 3 by injuries and you didn't get to realize all of your potential as a quarterback as great as your career was uh it could have been greater well, you know, would you ever allow yourself to feel sorry uh, for yourself because of the injuries and the fact that you couldn't show everybody just how good you were? And now I think there's a misperception on the part of many that you were overrated when, in fact, you're someone who had all these great skills but got injured. <laughs> you know what, Jeremy? Uh, I, I, I sure I thought about those things. I I, I thought about uh, what could have been or how how it might have felt to go injury free and play. But uh, this starts at home. Most things do start at home. And uh, whenever I think of my older brothers, uh, especially, uh, they don't want to hear excuses about things. You know, they they. they I, I was fortunate. I had a terrific experience. Uh, at our doctor, uh, orthopedist with the New York Jets, got me ready enough. Doctor Nicholas. Jim Nicholas. Yes, yeah. Doctor Jim Nicholas. Uh, 
to, to he fixed the knee, uh, my right knee to start with, and uh, it wasn't perfect, but it was, man, we did it, you know, Jeremy, uh, to this day, uh, there were a lot of injuries uh, that we could talk about, but uh, there are other players that have had worse injuries, you know, and uh, I, I'm thankful that we were able to win the championship and thankful for the connection to the teammates, coaches, and fans, man. And uh, I don't even uh, go back uh, and thinking about the injuries other than uh, there were times thinking, hey, man, you know, if I didn't do this, uh, what would have been like this? Uh, I'll tell you, Jeremy, my, my junior year in college, uh, actually sophomore, I saw one of the best running backs I've ever seen in my life at Alabama named Mike Frocky. Uh get a torn ligaments in his knee and uh he he was just absolutely wonderful reminded me of a thoroughbred man a stallion running around out that track and the field he could never play again after that uh i i saw athletes get hurt even carl mcadams one of our defensive linemen stepping off a curb and tearing achilles tendon he would have been a great linebacker, but he was so darn tough. He ended up playing in the middle of the defensive line. Uh, but serious injuries, head injuries, back injuries. Uh, now, I, I considered myself lucky. I, I, I really did, and the good Lord tests us in different ways, man. And uh, I just needed to play through some things and was fortunate enough to be able to do it. If, if you were playing today, Joe, I mean, the way that athletes approach the game now, where it's... 365 days a year and it's you know the diet and the uh training and the constant uh on the part of many um care for their their bodies and their souls um how do you think your career would be different if you were coming up today oh wow you know the athlete today is certainly uh better than yesteryear because of the reasons you just mentioned as well as uh the coaches and the training techniques, we have Coach Belichick uh, to start with up there in New England, but he goes back maybe to Hallis and Lombardi and even Eubank. You know, you learn from your predecessors. Coach Bryant, you mentioned. Uh, these coaches learn from the other coaches before them. Things are better in all sports today, no doubt. The golfers, look what they're doing, and the tennis players, heck. Uh, it's crazy. We still have the old basic problems, these racial issues and bias and all that stuff, you know, with the world. But uh, there's no doubt the uh, uh, sports is much better. And, uh, hey, Jeremy, we I didn't get drinking water. We didn't get drinking water on a practice field or a basketball court until my senior year in college. In 1964, Coach Bryant gathered us together and reluctantly, he said, look, y'all, we're going we're gonna to let y'all take a water break here. Uh, don't practice. Uh, the medical staff thinks they need to, you need to replenish some fluids there. So we'll go ahead and do that. Well, that was 64. Coach Shula, Don Shula, went to Miami Dolphins in 1970. And you know what? Dick Anderson and, and, and uh, Jake Scott, these cats told me, man, they practiced three times a day, and in 1970 they still weren't getting fluids on the practice field here in Miami. Mm. Uh, things were different. Uh, the medical people have improved a great deal, too. So uh, 
uh, woulda, coulda, shoulda, and yeah, buts are, are words that uh, I try not to use, like what would it have been like, what could I have done? And I added that, yeah, but Jeremy, because you may remember Don Klosterman. Mm-hmm. Don Klosterman, the general manager of the Baltimore Colts, the Houston Oils, the Los Angeles Rams, he added uh, to the would have, could have, should have list, yeah, but no, yeah, but <laughs> because invariably, and whether it be business meetings or player meetings with coaches, the coach says something, there'll be a player sitting out there and say, yeah, but cook. No, no, excuse me. Just listen. And do it my way, do it our way. <laughs> so woulda, coulda, shouldas, and yeah, buts, uh, I try to avoid those. We're speaking with Joe Namath. His new book is All the Way, My Life in Four Quarters. And Joe, um, you know, just personally, and I don't even know what the question here is, but uh, because you and my father were closely together, not only on the book, I Can't Wait Until Tomorrow, but also uh, the Joe Namath Show, which was short-lived, but should have had a longer lifespan. Did you ever go back and watch the Joe Namath show that uh, that my father was part of with you? Jeremy, I, your father was one of the best friends I had in life. It was too short a spread. Uh, I didn't realize how important that show was or could have been had we gone on. Uh, your dad was responsible for putting that whole thing together and getting the uh, guests we had on there, which were wonderful, and uh, it was one of the first shows uh, the Classic Sports Network was able to get when they started the, their network. Uh, it was joyful. It, it, it took place uh, the only day of the week uh, that I had off from practice and playing, and uh, again, I didn't have the knowledge. Uh, I, I didn't know uh, how important that could have been. I didn't have the passion uh, to appreciate the, the education to appreciate what was taking place at the time. I, well, if you haven't seen the show, this is for our audience, uh, I mean, it is really a time capsule back to the late 60s. I mean, you guys are sitting on the set, you know, there's there's booze, there are cigarettes, um, there's all kinds of sexual innuendo. You guys are talking about things you couldn't get away with now in 2019. I don't know if you remember, you used to have this special like um, surprise guest. And correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, but I think it's your friend Ann Margaret is the surprise guest in the audience <laughs> one week. And she's asking the surprise question. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you remember this? Yes, yes. And, and she says, she stands up and says, we have a question from the audience. You know, my father says, and uh, who stands up? Anne Margaret, one of the biggest stars in the world, one of the big sex symbols at the time, of course. And she says, Joe, to what do you attribute your quick release? I'm even surprised I'm saying this on radio. And, I, and your answer, which I'm sure you've forgotten, is fear and excitement. <laughs> And I mean, the stuff that you guys got away with, it was just, um, it's really remarkable. Yeah, uh, you reminded me of the show, uh, uh, George Siegel was on with Muhammad Ali. Oh, yeah. And George yeah. Siegel had just uh, finished a movie with Barbara Streisand. I think it was The Island of Pussycat. That's right. That's right. And uh, they uh, had a nude scene in there. Mm-hmm. And we had to take a break. Your dad picked up on it because Muhammad was stone silent over there while we were talking about oh, it. Oh, he was very uncomfortable. Uh, George is explaining it. 
And uh, I or your father looked at uh, Muhammad and says, what do you think about this thing, Muhammad? And he said, I am a Muslim minister, and you're talking about nudity and sex up here. What and that you know that's it. We took a break right then, and I don't know how we cut around the things, but uh, uh, it, it was uh, an interesting time. And uh, of course, Muhammad was one of the greatest, the greatest. All right, all right personality guys. Uh, you had to know him to really appreciate him. Now, you guys on the set of that particular show, as I recall, were speaking with Joe Namath. His new book is All the Way, My Life in Four Quarters. It seems like you you and Muhammad almost get into a fight because you're kind of calling him out on um, on Joe Frazier, whether or not, although he was banned at the time, he was stuck in Joe <laughs> Frazier. You might have that little bass awkward. Uh, your dad might have been calling him out. I'm not going to be calling Muhammad out or Cassius before that. <laughs> Muhammad, no, I wouldn't be calling him out. But Joe Frazier, you know Philadelphia. I'm a Pennsylvania guy, too, and everybody wanted to see that uh, get-together. And uh, you brought back a memory of going to Madison Square Garden and seeing that first fight, too, man. What a night that was, boy. March 8th, 1971, probably the biggest sports event of all time. Joe, you've been very generous with your time, and I know you've got a lot of publicity due for this book, uh, Joe Namath's first memoir since 1969, when I Can't Wait Until Tomorrow was published. But before I let you go, and again, I don't really have a question here. I just wanted to say, you know, because of the connection between uh, – you and my dad, people sometimes ask me, and I've had the privilege of doing stories with you over the years. People say, what's Joe Namath like? And I always say, Joe Namath is a gentleman. Joe Namath is uh, a great gentleman. He's kind and he's warm. I've never heard him say a bad word about another human being. I've been fortunate to know you uh, my whole life. And uh, I'm uh, among many people who I think, if it's the right way to put it, uh, thinks this book um, is terrific. The candor with which um, you've told your story and you've uh, offered yourself up as an inspiration to other people who've dealt with addiction issues. So I just wanted to say that and thank you for coming on the show, Joe. Thank you, Jeremy, for having me. And I look forward to our next visit, man. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. In 2015, our next guest, Rebecca Timlin Scalero, was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. She was told at the time that she had perhaps three years to live. A college soccer player at Fairfield University in Connecticut, an athlete all her life, she's written passionately and humorously about her life as a cancer patient, attracting national attention, raising awareness, and money as well through her foundation. Rebecca, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's great to have you here on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Now, I, I'll concede, Rebecca, that the uh, sports hook uh, for our interview isn't necessarily very strong, but we don't really care since you played at Fairfield U. You won soccer. is not enough of a hook for your audience. I can see that, I guess, but it's, <laughs> well, it's my bragging rights to my 10-year-old son. So. I, I, I'm just saying <laughs> it's, it's, it's been a while. Um, <laughs> let, let me ask you, Rebecca. As a former college soccer player, D1 soccer player, what, what did it mean to you to see the U.S. women win the World Cup in France? Well, I'll tell you, my coach at Fairfield, we were lucky enough to have Debbie, Bel Debbie Belkin, who had won that World Cup herself one year. And um, 
she was named all world best defender in 1987. So she, we got her right off, right hot off the press um, after winning the world cup in the eighties. And she was, we were lucky enough to grab her at Fairfield um, for the first year of our D one program, the women's program. And then she went on to coach at UMish, but, um, but yeah, so it meant the world because, you know, I knew her very well, obviously, after they had won the World Cup then. And I also played against um, Christine Lilly in high school. So, oh, of course. Like, you know, to see her there after the game and everything. She was part of the after ceremony. And I actually knew a lot of players on the team because my foundation had partnered with the New York Flash. And we also did a partnership with the Boston Breakers at one point um, when I first started the foundation. So, so some of those women were part of my uh, foundation fundraising. Um, a, a couple of years ago, coming off the Olympics. So it was pretty cool to see them. I mean, they're unbelievable. They're just unbelievable. They're unstoppable. And, and you mentioned Christine Lilly, I believe, from Wilton, Connecticut, uh, which is next, just next door to Fairfield. Yeah, yeah. So we played against each other in high school. Yeah. Pretty great player. And, uh, and Alyssa Nair is from Trumbull, which is on the other side of Fairfield, uh, the goalkeeper. That's right. So Connecticut's uh, representing, yes. Now, today, if I were to try out for a D1 team today, I would not even be allowed to bring them water. I can assure you of that. <laughs> but at the time, I was in the right place at the right time, and I was so lucky to play. And, yeah, that's how Andy and I know each other, and it was great. It was just a wonderful experience. And um, I brag about it every chance I get to my son, who's a little soccer player now. So We're speaking with Rebecca Timlin-Scalera. Uh, whose foundation uh, to combat metastatic breast cancer, the Cancer Couch Foundation, has raised more than $2 million in the last few years. And, you know, I, I, I've, I've read some of the things that you've written over the last few years, Rebecca, and they're moving and they're funny. Um, and you've inspired so many people with the way that you've chosen to live your life as a cancer patient and and fight the disease. Um, what has it been like for you to find yourself in a position to inspire people and to raise money and awareness? Well, you know, after um, my, you know, illustrious soccer career, <laughs> I went on to uh, become a psychologist, a neuropsychologist. And actually what I ended up doing um, really after 9-11, because I was doing a lot of trauma work in the city, then I just kind of found myself in the place and the time that that was needed. I worked a lot with trauma patients um, and, and right up until my diagnosis. And what I realized when I was diagnosed with stage four cancer is that I needed to take a page out of the lessons I learned from my patients that were, had gone through hideous traumas. I mean, you name it, and I had seen it, and I'd been on the other side of the couch listening to it. And what I had to draw upon was their resilience, the resilience that I had watched um, in my patients all those years. And I thought, okay, now it's my turn. I need to put my money where my mouth is, and you either buckle under this or you put your head up. And, and I think, actually, that's where I will say that being an athlete and having to stick it out, even when you're, you know you want to collapse, um, there's maybe something in that. I don't know if it's the chicken or the egg, if that, that drive made me an athlete or being an athlete, you know, gave me that drive. But either way, you know, it's kind of like digging deeper when you think your, your tank is completely empty. Um, it never is. It never is. And I just figured out, like, that's a better way to live, like with your head up than your head down, because, you know, we don't know how much time we have left. But it sure feels better to um, go around fighting it and, you know, with your head up rather than giving into it because then it's got you already. So I, I somehow found some resilience. And the reason that I even talk about being an athlete at all 
is that what I want people to understand is that I was as healthy as you could be. I was a lifelong athlete. This disease does not discriminate. So sometimes it's easy when you see somebody, you know, they've lost their hair from cancer and they maybe don't look like you or they don't look that, that healthy. I'm just like everybody else. And if this disease could happen to me, believe me, it could happen to anyone. And I don't say that to scare people, but to engage people and to realize, like, if we don't all do something to further a cure for cancer, because there is no cure right now. And, and the reason I started with the foundation was that I realized that people thought breast cancer was like the good cancer to get. They thought, oh, you guys are all set, all those pink ribbon money. Well, no, the pink ribbon money has not gone to stage four. Once it metastasizes, I almost have more in common with somebody with lung cancer than I do with early stage breast cancer. Once cancer metastasizes outside of the original area, that is what kills you. And there's been very little research money in the breast cancer world put towards it. And that's why I want to make a difference. And so my foundation only funds research for stage four metastatic breast cancer. And one in eight women will get breast cancer in their lifetime. And 30% of people with early stage breast cancer will eventually metastasize. It'll be stage four and men get breast cancer too. And when men get it, they often will get it and it's already at stage four because they haven't had the screenings that women do. And a lot of people don't realize that, that men get this disease as well. And 100% of the donations to the Cancer Couch Foundation benefit uh, research into metastatic breast cancer at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute uh, in Boston and Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. We're speaking with Rebecca Timlin Scalera. Um, who's been such a strong and important advocate for those combating the disease and for those who are trying to find cures. Um, your message is one of great positivity and hopefulness. Um, have you seen, spoken to people who have been moved by your message, inspired by your message, uh, and, and how does that make an impact on you? I have, and you know what? Um you know, I was recently lucky enough to be on the Today Show launching this um, campaign we have going on, Reason for Freeze and NBC, um, which was really modeled after the ice bucket challenge. And we're asking people to, like, eat something cold and, and then donate and challenge friends and everything. And we have a whole website for it, Reason for Freeze and NBC.org. And it's great. And, and once I was, when I was, after I was on the Today Show, I heard from a lot of women who had lost their husbands to this disease because I mentioned on the Today Show that men get breast cancer too. So like one person reaching out to me like that and saying, thank you so much for validating and for letting people know like about this because my husband died from this disease and nobody really gets it. And, you know, and then, um, you know, I heard some other people, women who are struggling with this disease and saying, I was just diagnosed a month ago and it's a horrible prognosis, but I saw you and it gives me hope. And just hearing from one person like that keeps me going because it's not easy, obviously, to to run a foundation while you're going through treatment and everything. But those hearing from people like that, that keeps me going. That inspires me, actually, when I get that kind of feedback. And, you know, what I would say to people is that, you know, no matter what it is, if you hear, if you have a diagnosis like this or whatever it is you're going through in your life, it's the middle of something. We don't know how it's going to end. And that's a great sports analogy. And that's something I got from my sports days is that, you know, until the last minute, you don't know how something is going to end until the absolute last minute of a game. And we're in the middle of life. We're in the middle of, you know, trials, tribulations, and victories. So keep going to the last minute. And um, actually, um, you know, I think it's a good way to go through life. Is It's not over till it's over. So I'm not going to give up. Give it, give it your all until the end. That's a great message. Um, thank you for joining us. We're speaking with Rebecca Timlin Scalera. 
Her foundation is the Cancer Couch Foundation, and as she just said, there's a website now. Uh, it's Reason, number four, Freezen, F-R-E-E-Z-I-N, M is in Mary, B is in boy, C is in Charlie, dot org. Or thecancercouch.com. That's easy, too. Thecancercouch.com is my regular website. That's easy. Well, Rebecca, thank you for uh, joining us. Good luck with everything, and I uh, hope to speak uh, again soon. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.